The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today is April 22nd, 2021, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the 2021 Perspectives Lecture Series. We welcome listeners from all over the world to, to tonight's live stream lecture event, and we're excited to welcome a small, socially distanced audience right here in our lecture hall. For those of you listening live out on the internet, uh, remember that you can submit a question for our question and answer period at the end of the lecture by emailing the main USAC email address, you can find that on our website, or by sending us a note in Facebook Messenger. Just search USAHEC, U-S-A-H-E-C, in Facebook and send us a message. You can find our website at usahec.org. So the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor this perspective series, uh, which is a seasonal lecture uh, program that provides a discussion of current and historical topics uh, critical to the understanding and practice of strategic leadership. Consisting of a spring and a fall season of four lectures each, the perspective seasons highlight a particular theme important to the study of military, the military profession. This season's theme is ethics and warfighting. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great honor to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Diem Greco. Uh, served over 20 years as an editor for the Military Review of the US at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, and served as the editor and publications director at the Foreign Military Studies Office. An award-winning author of 14 books on military and socio-political subjects, he has also written extensively for numerous national and international publications, as well as news agencies. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Mr. D. M. Giangreco. Well, hi, it's really great to be here this evening. And uh, I think giving a little background to, uh, to uh, Berlin and why uh, we were doing what we were doing there at the tail end of the, uh, of the war in Europe might be kind of useful, so <clears throat> I'll start off by mentioning the obvious, though, is that the United States had entered World War II late, and because of its sheer distance from Europe and the uh, Western Pacific, it did not begin to experience uh, grinding day-in, day-out, uh, you know, uh, casualties comparable to those of the other belligerents until really the conflict's uh, final year. So, not even counting the Navy and Marines, the U.S. Army alone uh, was losing soldiers at a rate that Americans today would find astounding, suffering an average of 65,000 killed, wounded, and missing each and every month that the casualty surge of June 1944 to June 1945 uh, continued with the November, December, and January figures standing at 72,000, 88,000, and 79,000, uh, respectively, in post-war tabulations. Now, most, most of these young men were lost battling the Nazis, 
but it was believed by Americans from Waukegan to Washington that the United States had only reached the midpoint of the war and the frightful casualties soon to emerge from the fighting on Iwo Jima and Okinawa confirmed that the army, really what the army had long anticipated, that the second half of the war would certainly be no less bloody than the first once Japan itself was invaded. Now, even before Truman was sworn in as vice president, manpower requirements for that very operation were moving to the front burner as Stimson uh, called, <clears throat> as called a press conference on January 11, 1945, where he announced that the Army's monthly selective service call-up, which had already, by the way, just been increased from 60,000 to 80,000, it was yeah, it had already been increased to sixty thousand, and it was going to eight, and it was going to eighty thousand that month, and it was going to be ratcheted up yet again in March to one hundred thousand men per month, in anticipation of the invasion. One week later, letters outlining the criticals, uh, critical critical uh, manpower needs uh, were sent from Roosevelt, Marshall and Chief of Naval Operations Ernest J. King to the House Military Affairs Committee and released to the New York Times and other newspapers on January 17th of 45. The public was informed in front page articles that the Army must provide 600,000 replacements for overseas theaters by June 30th and together with the Navy will require a total of 900,000 inductions by June. To handle the influx of draftees, the Army also planned to increase the number of training regiments to 34 in order to form a ready pool of replacements. Uh, and the replacements uh, training centers works, uh, actually were expanded to a wartime peak of 400,000 men in June, long after U.S. combat divisions had pulled to a halt uh, along Germany's Elbe River. Now, what this near doubling of draft quotas over just a several-month period meant in terms of the planned invasions of Japan was essentially this. Starting in March 1945, when levies were to increase to 100,000 per month, for the US Army and Army Air Force, and 40,000 uh, for the uh, Navy and Marines, uh, by the way, nearly, e nearly every man inducted would enter the replacement stream now oriented for a one-front war against Japan. The Army did not sugarcoat the prospect of a long, bloody war for the soldiers uh, in the field and new inductees and warned in Yank and elsewhere that, quote, major factors, none of them predictable at this stage of the game, will decide whether it will take one year, two years, or longer to win the Far East War, end quote. And far greater force than what existed in the Pacific at the time would be needed to defeat uh, the Imperial armies on their home ground. 
By late February 1945, U.S. Army planners completed what they hoped would be the final iteration of the redeployment plan they had been laboring on since early 1944. They had originally and optimistically uh, believed that 2,442,000 men could be shipped to the Pacific from Europe and the United States, concurrent with 1,600,000 to the U.S., all on the transport ships projected to be available after the defeat of Germany. Unfortunately, many of those ships did not, in fact, exist, uh, and, uh, and the plan also assumed that the Nazis would surrender by January 1945, and that nine months would be available for the overseas movements. There was also no way that the Pentagon planners at that time could anticipate that in little more than a year, the army would find itself having to demobilize much of its manpower for political reasons. These and other matters forced the number of Pacific-bound uh, men down and down again to 1,700,000 uh, in December 1944, then to 1,100,000 in March 1945, before the reality of increasingly casualty-intensive combat against the Japanese began to push the numbers back up again. U.S. Army Forces Pacific, under General Douglas MacArthur, planned to absorb a myriad of new, uh, you know, units from the European theater during the last six months of 1945, uh, which would swell AFPAC uh, to about uh, 2,440,000 men uh, by, not, by 1946, a figure that does not include either attrition replacements, most of whom were from the up-to-draft calls, uh, or the Navy and Marines, and yes, even some Army elements that were being added to the uh, forces operating under Sink, uh, the Sink Pack headquarters of Admiral Chester uh, Nimitz in the Central Pacific. Excluding ground forces, that would pass into the control of Army field commanders after the assault land landings, planners estimated that the Navy in the Pacific would steadily swell to more than 1,150,000 men, plus approximately 270,000 Marines, most of whom would pass into AFPAC's control. Nor that did it include Army elements flooding into the Marianas and Okinawa to join the new U.S. Strategic Air Forces, which would increase by 300, or increase to 313,000 men. Secretary of War Stimson would later report that the number of American military personnel involved in operations to subjugate Japan, quote, was on the order of five million men. If all those indirectly concerned are included, it will be larger still. And before Roosevelt's death, Stimson had warned the president, quote, 
that a so-called negotiated peace was impossible in this kind of war where one side was fighting for civilization and the other side represented barbarism. There was no common meeting ground and there therefore necessarily had to be a fight to the finish. That a fight to the finish meant a long, horrible contest where we needed all the manpower we could summons. Now it's important to understand when you're looking at the redeployment of American forces to the Pacific that the War Department in conjunction with the Office of War Mobilization hammered out uh, both the details of how to handle the nation, nation's worsening manpower shortage as well as what was needed to be what needed to be done to help ensure the public's support for the war with Japan did not waver during 45 and 46. The result was that partial demobilization that uh, I mentioned uh, in what was then believed to be the middle of the conflict. Through the use of a points system, the longest serving high point troops were allowed to return home for good even as selective service inductions were nearly doubled to 100,000 men per month. After the defeat of Germany, all combat divisions in Europe were placed into one of four categories. Category one units, uh, let's see if I'm in the right place here. Uh, oh, I seem to have Somehow or another skipped past something here. Let's go ahead on down. Oh, I don't see my chart. Oh, well, you'll have to take it from me. Category one units were to stay. Okay, let's go back to that. Were to stay uh, as part of the occupations of Germany, Austria, and Northeast Italy, while category two units were to redeploy for the invasion as elements of the 8th Army and 10th Army already in the Pacific. And the odd number, U.S. 1st Army from the European Command, which was principally made up of uh, 3rd Army formations. The 6th Army would get no uh, divisions, but would receive a considerable number of engineer units. Category 2 divisions were slated for extinction and subject to a huge reshuffling that would send their low point men to replace high point men uh, lost from the Pacific bound occupation and occupation divisions. Meanwhile, their own low point, uh, their own low point uh, oops, here it is. Meanwhile, their own high point soldiers, those with scores totaling up to the magic uh, number 85 or more, were transferred to Category 4 divisions to be sent home for discharge. The Category 4s, however, would have to cool their heels at camps uh, in France while the Category 2s shipped out to the United States where they would take on additional replacements while the cadre from Europe was on 30-day leave. To ensure that the base infrastructure to support these men was ready to receive them, 400,000 soldiers 
from non-divisional su uh, support service, construction troops and the like, were to be sent directly to the Pacific via the Panama Canal because of AFPEC's uh, Army engineers exasperating shortage, that's how they described it, and failure to receive enough replacements for the ones already in the Pacific. More than 155,000 of these urgently needed service and support uh, troops and engineers left port from May through late August. By the time that representatives of Imperial Japan signed the surrender documents aboard the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 45, all but two of the initial 16 divisions bound for the Pacific had arrived in the United States and at least four more in Europe had received alerts for commitment to the following year's battles in Japan. Earlier in March, the replacement stream for their war against Germany was for all practical purposes shut down. The, uh, really the, uh, the, the practice, really the replacement stream in Europe had dropped at this point uh, to 58,000 uh, in March to 46,000 in April and was had now plummeted to uh, 737 men in May. The principal beneficiary of a replacement pipeline now directed solely towards the Pacific was AFPAC, which was delighted to report that their perpetual understrength was reduced to less than 5,000 men in May. Uh, by the end of the following month, MacArthur's command found itself with its first overstrength in three and a half years since Pearl Harbor. In spite of a larger than anticipated number of men being uh, shifted to replacement depots on Okinawa, where they were, uh, you know, under the much bloody, where they would serve with the much bloodied uh, 10th Army fighting under Sink Pack. Now let's see if I can get this to the right spot. As far as the Army's senior leaders in Washington uh, and Supreme Allied Headquarters in Europe were concerned, the balance of fighting against Germany was simply going to be a giant mop-up stretching from the Adriatic to the North Sea. Not that, uh, not that mopping up is a painless affair. Uh, on the ground, it still involves the lone platoon clearing a small wood, or the uh, regimental-sized uh, combat command forcing a river crossing in the face of heavy small arms uh, fire. Men are killed and wounded every day through what the British euphemistically refer to as normal wastage until the last scattered uh, resistance is finally snuffed out. If you had asked an, an American soldier trudging down a dusty French road or bouncing along in a Jeep where the fighting against Hitler's Nazis would finally end, Berlin would have been the answer. Whether the GI wore stripes on his sleeve or stars on his collar. On April 4, 1945, 
General Omar Bradley's 12th Army Group issued formal orders for the drive into the heart of Germany. The 9th Army under General William Simpson was instructed to seize a bridgehead over the Elbe River and, quote, be prepared to continue the advance on Berlin or to the Northeast, the latter move being one that would put the first army on its right into the capital instead. By April 13, Simpson's army had its bridgehead and orders to immediately expand it to include Potsdam. But two days later, he was told by Bradley to stay put. The question of what to do about Berlin had been boiling for weeks. Uh, London, Washington, uh, and Commander, you know, uh, and, and General Eisenhower, you know, really with the uh, British Prime Minister and his senior military uh, leaders stressing that the uh, political and that the political and psychological importance of seizing Berlin was paramount, while Eisenhower, with the decisive backing of President Roosevelt and uh, General Marshall, firmly maintained that the focus must remain on the German army itself. But why this seemingly, uh, why the single-minded determination to seemingly throw out the window, the fundamental Clausewitzian uh, dictum that war is dominated by the political object on the part of Eisenhower. The Schaeff commander had stated several times that he would take advantage of, quote, any opportunity to capture Berlin cheaply and even cheerfully adjust his plans if so ordered. But Eisenhower's boss in Washington, although under heavy and persistent pressure from Churchill and the others to do so, pointedly refrained uh, from issuing such orders. And the British were wise enough to not press for a formal decision by the combined chiefs of staff because of the simple fact that all concerned knew the United States had another dangerous foe to conquer in addition to the Nazis. Time was tight. Shipping was tight, and while most of the Category 2 divisions destined for 1946 operations in the Pacific were not part of the 9th and redeploying 1st Armies eyeing Berlin, but belonged instead to 3rd Army, much to the chagrin, by the way, of uh, its commander who would soon uh, find out that he would not be commanding them, um, there was little muscle behind the 1st and 9th Army spearheads on the Elbe. Eisenhower reminded Marshall that his center of gravity was far to the rear, and both commanders knew well that a soldier-intensive battle in Berlin would force the bulk of U.S. forces east and commit them to a fight of unknown duration at the exact time when many European theater divisions had to prepare for an about face that would send them west. Hundreds of Eisenhower's smaller, non-divisional engineer and support elements were critically needed in the Pacific, and the invasion schedule 
with little margin of error required that many of them begin the process of leaving directly for the Pacific where they would immediately be absorbed into MacArthur's AFPAC, not for Operation Coronet in 1946, but for Olympic a scant six months in the future. Moreover, the replacement spigot in anticipation of no uh, significant fighting had been shut off and divisions were already beginning to be pulled from combat operations in preparation for the movement west. One of them, the 9th uh, Army's 95th, received its marching orders on the very day that Simpson was ordered to sit tight on the Elbe. And the jump off from Zerbst in the uh, Barbie uh, bridgehead was called off. The War Department, oops, here we go. Ah, oh, there's Zerbst, okay. The War Department had begun as early as February to press Eisenhower for his redeployment plans and his intelligence chief, Major General Kenneth Strong, who according to General James Gavin, quote, had great respect for the Germans' resilience, also cautioned Eisenhower right up to the very end to take no chances, end quote. Now, General Gavin later related that the Supreme Allied Commander had frequently mentioned to Strong <clears throat> the worries he had about the imminent movement of troops to the Pacific. Eisenhower, moreover, was willing to consider making such a run if uh, to on Berlin, if it could be done on the cheap, say perhaps 10,000 men, and asked Bradley what he thought would be the cost. Bradley's answer that it might be as high as 100,000 casualties slammed the door on any further discussion. For although the 12th Army Group Commander Bradley thought of it uh, in terms of this being uh, a pretty stiff price to pay for a prestige uh, objective, uh, especially when you had to turn it over to, I think his words were, to turn it over to the other guy. The strategic complications presented by this quantity of losses was crystal clear at Eisenhower's level of command under the combined chiefs of staff. Now, Eisenhower had not yet been fully briefed on Olympic, and Marshall was allowing him great latitude in deciding on the closing offensive actions. But even though the chief commander was uh, clearly not anxious to send his divisions east, Marshall was also keeping a close eye on the situation, uh, lest the British senior commanders in Churchill somehow succeed in maneuvering Eisenhower into an ill-considered uh, attempt to seize the city. The British were openly flouting the chain of command, and Marshall later stated that he was forced to speak frankly uh, during the combined chief's uh, executive session in Malta. Uh, 
which is, by the way, was in the uh, beginning of February 1945. He spoke frankly about his deep concern over, quote, pressures of the prime minister on Eisenhower and the fact of the proximity of the British chiefs of staff. Interestingly, the subject was brought up by Field Marshal Brooke on the left there, who said that he and the other British chiefs, quote, were very much worried by the influence uh, on General Eisenhower by General Bradley and General Patton. Marshall was not real pleased about this. Marshall responded, well, Brooke, they are not nearly as much worried as the American chiefs of staff are worried about the immediate pressures and influence of Mr. Churchill and, uh, on General Eisenhower. The president practically never sees Eisenhower, never writes him. That is at my advice because he is a allied commander. Marshall pointed out that Brooke and Churchill, quote, were seeing him every week and not going through the combined chiefs of staff while the Americans were playing according to the rules. Said Marshall, we had a terrible meeting. Marshall, however, had little to worry about. For both soldiers, there was no question that a full-scale battle east of the Elbe must be avoided because if it did occur, precisely how would Eisenhower manage to reconstitute the units from which the approximately 100,000 men were deducted? Deducted being a quote. The answer is Eisenhower couldn't. To do so would either gut his occupation forces or require potentially severe dislocations for Coronet, Operation Coronet, the second invasion of Japan in 46, by throwing some Category 2 divisions into the cauldron. Outcomes that would have put at risk national war aims. Subjecting Category 2 divisions to potentially heavy and prolonged combat was not a risk that anyone in the U.S. chain of command would even suggest. The nine Third Army divisions earmarked for a redeployment to the Pacific, plus five more in the European theater scattered from Bavaria to the Rhineland, uh, there were two more in Italy, simply could not be a part of any battle for Berlin nor would it have been likely that the Category 2s from the 1st and 9th Armies be tasked with anything more than temporary flank protection. With the British having their own troubles pushing units towards Denmark, the American armies rushing south, uh, southeast to head off any German consolidations uh, in, the, uh, in the Alps, the grim task of wading into the 231 square mile urban area would have fallen on the still dispersed 1st and 9th armies. Eisenhower, meanwhile, would be in the uncomfortable position of having to explain to Joseph Stalin 
to whom he had outlined in March his closing moves in central Germany, why he was now moving his forces in a different direction than where he told the Soviets to expect them. U.S. divisions racing forward, moreover, U.S. divisions racing forward to be committed in ones and twos up the single road from Barbie uh, instead of a clenched fist invited very severe losses once they got inside the city and in fact were already taking a beating. Now, having pushed 100 miles into what was slated according to the agreements made at Yalta to be the Soviet sector, multiple 19 Corps uh, spearheads reached the Elbe on April 12th and 13th, and regimental commanders leading the battles to get across at uh, Magdeburg, uh, Schoenbeck, and uh, Tangermunde were badly wounded uh, within sight of the river. In several instances, key bridges on direct routes to Berlin were blown up in the faces of attacking GIs. Just south of Magdeburg, an assault crossing on uh, duck amphibious trucks by the vaunted 2nd Armored Division failed as three of its infantry battalions that made it to the east bank bereft of tank and air support were methodically chewed up by relentless German counterattacks. Much of the force was successfully withdrawn across the Elbe on April 14th, and the disaster turned out to be not as bad as believed at the time when numerous groups, large and small, infiltrated back across the river on subsequent nights. Thankfully, it turned out that only 300, 330 men had been lost. Though other successful footholds were achieved to the north and the south, the constricted 3rd Infantry Division perimeter at Barbie was the sole lodgment within reach of the capital. And Lieutenant General Raymond McLean, who commanded 19th Corps, was not hopeful that it could soon be used as a spring springboard for a drive east. After observing the situation at Barbie, chief historian, uh, S, uh, chief European historian, Colonel Sam SLA Marshall, along with Captain Robert E. Merriam from his staff, spent two hours studying maps and troop dispositions with General McLean on April 14th, SLA Marshall later wrote that 19th Corps was spread out over 150 miles with its rear dangling in the air. A real firefight was going, uh, was going up front. Its logistical problems were heavy. Time was needed for collection and regrouping. McLean's own conclusion which we felt was fully substantiated by the briefing, was that, at best, the Corps might get a few heavy motorized patrols into western Berlin by the time the Red Army had taken uh, the main body of the city. 
those were not soft, uh, those were not 50 soft miles between the Elbe and Berlin. Now, McLean did eventually get some heavy patrols, keyword, out uh, to the Potsdam area, uh, but again, that's, uh, it, it, those, those are patrols. The actual German collapse on the front would not come for several more days, and SLA Marshall recalled that, quote, no one, uh, no one there talked about an opportunity missed. But McLean's uh, boss, Simpson, did want Berlin and presumably would have pushed every element under his control east if he had been uh, ordered by Bradley, if he had not been ordered by Bradley to cease offensive operations. The casualties suffered in Berlin uh, had been, if, or rather, if, Stimps, if Simpson had al been allowed to plunge ahead at Zerbst, 10 miles east of uh, Barbie would be heavy, perhaps even extreme. And it is important to remember that the replacement stream to the European theater was shut down and shut down for good. Yet units uh, savaged in house-to-house -house fighting must be at least partially reconstituted for reasons of both morale and politics. There's some very uncomfortable ways to do this in theater through a draconian culling of service and support units, uh, for example, but that would have been highly disruptive and carried out practically on the heels of the exact same situa manpower situation during the Germans' recent Ardennes offensive. To make matters worse, many of those potential replacements or would-be replacements were scheduled to ship out to the Pacific. And would it be a separate shuffling of personnel or one attempted as uh, somehow attempted to be part of uh, the uh, planned redeployment uh, musical chairs? Put simply, the US Army in Europe did not have the manpower where it needed to adequately support a, a brutal street fight in Berlin, generating casualties that were neither anticipated nor prepared for in one lump during April and May. Nor would replacements be readily available afterward to reconstitute, uh, reconstitute the infantry's depleted ranks. Eisenhower could, however, cover, cover several months of stiff but incremental fighting in the uh, redoubt uh, with what was on hand. The Soviets, meanwhile, were already massed within striking distance of the capital and anxious to crush the Nazi beast in one titanic blow. Eisenhower's forces were more dispersed than is uh, commonly realized and had accomplished their part in the defeat of Germany and had other things to do. That the requirements for the invasion of Japan were a factor 
in American Resolve, uh, the American Resolve to not get down in, uh, bogged down in Berlin has re generally remained off the radar screens of historians because constraints on the U.S. Army from the dispersal of its forces and general lack of troops was so fundamental, so elementary, that it really didn't have, uh, it really didn't uh, leave squat for paperwork. And I have uh, the late Larry Bland uh, to uh, thank for bringing this whole question, uh, uh, question up to me. I'd really never thought of it before. Uh, anyway, it was so fundamental, so elementary, that it need not be outlined and reiterated in communications among senior commanders in Washington and Europe. Similarly, it occurred to, uh, and this is a quote, it occurred to none of us when uh, then, and this is SLA Marshall, it occurred to none of us then that the, uh, that the situation that day, as briefed by General McLean, 60 miles from Berlin, would be questioned decades later after the war. SLA Marshall said, had we understood, Miriam and I, I would have felt duty bound to check and record all facts pertaining to that front when the halt came, end quote. Historian Stephen Ambrose, uh, looking at some of this in the early 60s, was later taken by the fact that, quote, the situation was so self-evident uh, that Marshall and Miriam did not bother to even make record of it. And SLA Marshall noted that, quote, he did not even mention the huddle with McLean to General Eisenhower until 10 years later. With communication between Schaaf and Washington and uh, with the communications between Schaefer and Washington and among Eisenhower's lieutenants can be found the occasional cryptic comment or shorthand reference to the unfavorable disposition of American forces or prohibitive uh, casualties uh, expected. But that, frankly, was all that the generals among themselves really had to say because all concerned understood that a costly, open-ended battle this late in the campaign would throw carefully laid redeployment and occupation plans into turmoil. And for what gain? No one but Churchill envisioned that a half-century-long struggle for control of Europe was about to begin and the struggle would have Berlin at its apex. What they did know was that wherever the American field armies came to a stop, and more than a dozen US divisions were already uh, conducting combat operations in the future East Germany, they would soon move to uh, move yet again to the temporary national occupation zones op agreed to uh, at the Yalta Conference. Thus, the while the gigantic movement of men to the Pacific would, in the end, have no effect 
on the outcome of the war with Japan because of the war's early termination. It did influence what many consider to be one of the most important decisions of World War II, a decision that would have a pivotal impact on Germany and East-West relations during the Cold War. And unlike the final death throes of the Nazis, which saw Soviet troops engage the bulk of German strength and suffer 352,000 casualties, including 78,000 dead, during the final 23-day assault on Berlin and central Germany, American casualties for essentially the same period would be 43,000 with 8,351 killed in action. Many of these soldiers were hastily buried at battlegrounds that would soon be turned over to the Red Army as part of the Soviet-administered territory. Over the next two years, some 2,334 Americans, including many uh, Army Air Forces personnel lost earlier, were reinterred in U.S. military cemeteries after the military government authorities of both nations uh, conferencing in Berlin made arrangements for their painstaking recovery from what would uh, later become East Germany. In July 45, U.S. forces pulled back from the 600 uh, or I'm sorry, 16,400 uh, square miles of the agreed-upon Soviet zone that they had seized from the Nazis. And the Red Army moved in quickly on their heels. In exchange, the Americans and British were given generous access or rather, not generous, I'm misreading this here, I was saying it can't be generous, let's say tenuous, tenuous access to their agreed upon occupation sector in Berlin. Here you see the uh, 2nd Armored Division elements pulling in. Free access that they were supposed to enjoy, of course, proved to be rather uh, problematical and is another story. Most of the Americans who had fought their way into Germany were gone by August, and leaving their machines behind. Some waited in trans, uh, transit camps in France, named after famous American cigarette brands like Pall Mall, Newport, Chesterfield, and Lucky Strike, waiting anxiously uh, and nervously lest they be uh, re, uh, reassigned to the Pacific uh, for ships to take them to the United States. And they couldn't, and they had a long wait because the 16 divisions uh, were already being uh, used on that very same shipping because they were the ones who had first call. Uh, lucky them because it's for the Pacific. But in any event, they were 
on their way to the Pacific Theater, ultimately, where they would pay the butcher's, uh, butcher's bill on mainland Japan. As things turned out, they didn't have to, but that also is another story. Well, thank you for very, uh, very much. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Gingreco. Um, excellent uh, talk. We now have about 15 minutes for questions and answers. Uh, just to remind our remote audience out there, uh, you can submit your questions to us uh, for this question and answer period by either emailing us at the main USAC email address. <clears throat> you can find that on our main website at usahec.org or you can send us a direct message right there in Facebook Messenger. Again, just go into Facebook and look up USAHEC. You'll be able to send us a direct message. Uh, so with that, uh, we do actually have uh, a question uh, right there in the back for our live audience, and uh, we'll start out there. Hi, thanks. Um, you mentioned, you described Eisenhower's messages as cryptic. One of the reasons that might be is that I believe Eisenhower and Bradley were the only two who knew that the Yalta Agreement was going to put Berlin in the Soviet sector anyway. No, Bradley knew, and the and uh, and it had spread to other senior commanders. Bradley even uh, famously mentioned. Wait, I haven't asked my question yet. Yes, but, okay, sorry. <laughs> so the question that I have is, um, if they knew, and uh, certainly Bradley and Eisenhower knew, and your argument is that others knew as well, then what would have been the purpose to take a scattered force? scattered around Western Germany, west of Berlin, and move it toward a capital where the Soviets were not just advancing there on, is no good ready to flatten it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yep, so the, the question I have is, do, do you have then a conflict between a strategic level goal and an operational level goal? That is the operational question is, can you get to Berlin? The strategic question is, even if you can, why would you? Well, I, I agree completely. And that's where you kind of get into that Clausewitzian thing, because like uh, uh, Churchill is focused on one thing. He's focused on Europe, where he's going to have to live, and the British people are going to have to live. And the fact that Britain had gone to war for, really, because Poland had been invaded. So Churchill is pressing. He's pressing hard uh, any way he can to get the United States, or and if maybe even lever Eisenhower somehow or another into doing it, not that he had a, much of a chance to be able to do that, I believe. Uh, anything he could do, any pressure he could put on, he was putting it on Roosevelt. Roosevelt got tired of it. He was putting it on Truman, because that's ultimately who uh, Marshall you know, uh, works for. But the objective at that point was defeat of both armies. And, uh, and Roosevelt himself had uh, suggested an occupation, you know, because you know, Ro Roosevelt's no fool. He knows that stuff, he's being briefed. He knows, he knows that there's problems with shipping. He knows this from Stimson. He knows that there's problems with manpower and that's something that Stimson was pulling his remaining hair out over and Eisenhower almost quit over, uh, not Eisenhower, Marshall threatened to quit over one set of proposals that he made on expanding the army by uh, 10 divisions, because uh, it would have it just decimated the officer corps at that time, because we just weren't producing enough officers for it. But in any event, again, it's another story. 
I no, I agree. Uh, it 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 you you it was it was it was so ill considered that it was not something that was that could be done. But I tell you, in the fifties and especially by the sixties, it was a big topic. It was a big topic that we had in effect. Uh, been a major cause of the Cold War because we didn't do this impossible thing. And so, so really it kind of, uh, so you're dealing with a number of things. You know, you're dealing with the fact that it became a political issue in the uh, late 50s and especially the 60s. You're dealing with uh, the United States' strategic objectives, which included Japan, uh, versus uh, Churchill's, which are, shall we say, Eurocentric. And there was a lot of things, you know, being pulled at it. But it's like they were saying, you know, nobody thought it was a crazy decision, you know, that we didn't push forward to Berlin. It was what made sense. You know, it was what was planned for, an ad hoc run at Berlin. Eisenhower was only willing to do if by some strange confluence of events, he could do it on the cheap. And doing it on the cheap would probably be defined as... Uh, some form of provisional government or some form of generals declared that they wanted to surrender and much of the German army say that is gonna follow them, but then you've got diehards that you're still gonna have to root out of Berlin. You know, okay, maybe that's 10,000 men, but you didn't have that, you know, where it's like diehards that you're gonna have to get rid of. You were gonna have to go into street fighting functionally for the city at that time, uh, which is what the Soviets did do. So it, it, it was kind of, I think that whole thing about uh, 10, th I think that whole thing about doing it on the cheap was just to show some flexibility on his part. I don't think he believed that there was gonna be anything that was gonna allow him to do it on the cheap. You know, let's put it this way. He still has divisions that are and he and nobody in his in under under uh, Eisenhower is stopping divisions being pulled out from under or being separated from Ninth Army. So uh, Eisenhower didn't think that something out of the blue was going to be coming. He's still taking units out of out of Ninth Army. So while it, while it's something that certain historians pulled out that oh Eisenhower would have done it, it's like. No, that that was that's a throwaway. You know, he's still pulling divisions. Divisions are still being pulled out of the Ninth Army while this is going on. Good. I'd like to follow on. You answered part of it, but if it was evident to all the senior leaders that this was an impossibility, it actually develops into a, into a issue fairly quickly. I know even in the late 40s, Ike feels he has to defend. Okay. So the, the question is, is why does it, the, how does the critique develop so quickly then that we, we, we should have gone, we should have done? I understand about the late Cold War, the Cold War stuff, but it actually is a, it, it fairly quickly it starts to appear and why, I guess, is the question. Well, now that that's getting into a little bit different area, but I'll, but sure, I'll, I'll yak about that. Uh, there was criticism being heaped on from certain quarters on the Roosevelt administration. Now we're getting into the political side of it. Uh, gosh, as early as right after the Crimea concert, uh, concert conference, uh, and especially after uh, Yalta, that a lot of the things that the Soviets had agreed to 
uh, there was no enforcement mechanisms, like a Declaration for Liberated Europe. I think that was the name of it. You know, it sounded great, but it was a political document. But when you read it, you saw that there, that it was, what was being done was going to be at the discretion of the different, you know, national, you know, groupings uh, and not under any, say, combined authority. So really what the Soviets did in their territory, you know, we, they had nobody looking over their shoulder. And the Soviets liked to say, well, that the Americans had actually, the Americans, the Germans had actually, Americans and the British, rather, had actually established that pattern in Italy. You know, but in any event, uh, there was, um, the Roosevelt administration, followed by the Truman administration, was doing everything they could, and I mean everything they could, to try and keep the Soviets placated at this point because they really wanted them in the United Nations. Both guys were like on the same sheet of music on that, that the United Nations, the establishment of the United Nations and getting it ratified in Congress was the big deal. And so they had to kind of move things through in the most politic way and in the most pretty way possible to ensure Senate ratification. Uh, of the Atlantic Charter. So th this, that's, that's the underpinnings of a lot of this, if that's of any help at all. Yeah. All right, sir, we do have one question coming in from the, from the internet. Sure. Uh, and this is actually uh, interesting. Uh, looking at the Soviet side of things, do we have much of a record of the immediate Soviet reaction to the U.S. holding back and what sort of internal discussions uh, were going on within the Soviet camp? Well, now, I'll have to ask, what do they mean by holding back? Because, we, like, Eisenhower went right up to the uh, Elbe River, which, you know, true, that's in East Germany, but the, but the idea was is to have a very definable something that both commands could see. And a river is wide and it's, and it's definable. But, you know, and we... Uh, you know, we pulled back in stages as we pretty much negotiated that out with the Soviets. Uh, so I, now true, uh, Churchill was really pushing forcefully for us to not do it, but we in fact did it. We, you know, uh, you know, the Soviets I'm sure would have liked us to have uh, pulled back faster in a num and in fact, I think when uh, the, the original, uh, the last phase of the pullback, I believe, which was on July 4th, we'd originally, I think, wanted to, uh, July 4th is when we actually pulled into Berlin, I believe, uh, but the, and, and, uh, and they pulled into uh, Leipzig, uh, Leipzig area, I think their first elements on the second. I think that was the last phase of it. And uh, we had, uh, Yeah, the only reason why we were in what would later become East Germany is because we didn't want armies accidentally smacking into each other. And the Elbe River, you know, it's real definable to both sides. You know, that's not you know, like you're saying, well, we have a line from this town 
to this town, which just begs artillery rounds coming over and whacking one side or the other, you know, I mean, and all kinds of problems. So we fought our way to the elbow. You know, that's over a hundred, we've, Ninth Corps uh, pushed in, pummeled their way in a hundred miles. I mean, that's, that's no, that's not an inconsiderable uh, movement. But again, those are, those are all spearheads. Yeah, it, it wasn't going to happen. Now, Simpson would have certainly loved to go there. And I don't know what kind of, uh, I don't know what may have survived deep in the archives on any, on any uh, communications from him. I don't know what the Soviets would have uh, said about this. There's a couple people, oh, like Dr. Kip from uh, FIMSO, FIMSO, like he'd know. I'm sure there's a number of people who may have an idea on this from reading the, the Soviet histories. And the Soviets, at the beginning of Glasnost, had a lot of stuff that was available. Now, in bits and pieces, they've tightened up and tightened up and tightened up to the point where something like about maybe five or, uh, according to Colonel Glantz, uh, maybe about five, ten years ago, they were almost back to, the, to where they'd been before during the Soviet era. But there was a point where, where they had a lot of stuff open. And Glantz maintained a few years ago that he does, Colonel Glantz, Dave Glantz, I don't know if any of you have heard of him or know of him, but uh, he, you know, top notch in this area, absolutely. He maintains that he still expects batches of stuff to be thrown out from time to time. So that, that may be known somewhere but I have not seen, I myself have not seen anything written on it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question. Do we have a last question from uh, our group here? All right, back there in the back, we have our final question for the evening. Um, that was just a, a question in the beginning of your talk. You mentioned that there were some manpower um, issues for the oh, US yeah. Army. Um, and I was just uh, wondering if you could, you know, uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Are, are those issues a, a problem of training, equipping, uh, shipping a, them, or is oh, that Oh man, a there were so many, there were so many, there were so many problems. It was, uh, interestingly enough, the training of individual soldiers. The training of individual soldiers we knew it was going to be a problem, but frankly, we did a pretty decent job of it. Part of the problem was is we did not realize that, quite realize that casualties were going to be as high as they were. Uh, you had divisions within the army uh, on what should be done. You had divisions within the War Department. Stimson, for example, believed that we had an inadequate force very inadequate, and he wanted to see us with functionally one more field army. He wanted to see 10 more divisions for the European theater. Marshall, to the point of threatening to quit when, uh, and, th and this is something that came up in it, according to Stimson's diary, in two sets of arguments spread like many months apart, because this, this was an ongoing issue, and it made it into his diary twice at least, that uh, Eisenhower, uh, I'm sorry, not Eisenhower, that uh, when he brought it up that he was just gonna do this, 
Marshall threatened to quit because we could not produce officers fast enough for this. Uh, it, you know, you're just a, you're just asking, you're begging for more casualties. You, you're just you're just you're just begging for it, and we were having a lot of trouble meeting draft meeting draft quotas. We were making them pretty well the first year. The second year and third year, uh, it was a lot tougher. When this uh, thing came up about uh, where it's it's pumped up within just several uh, month period going from 60,000 to 80,000 to 100,000, really 140,000 uh, a month. This was having to be very tightly coordinated with the uh, industrial side in the United States uh, because industry was having its own problems as well. At this point, the, the manpower problems were so extreme, and most of this is forgotten now, that uh, they were looking at the drafting of women nurses. They were, seriously, uh, I've, I've got a book. I had it over here for ready reference in case I needed it. But like, uh, most of this book is actually devoted to, it's called Hell to Pay uh, on uh, the uh, end game against Japan. And I'd have to say that probably the bulk of that book deals with manpower issues. Seriously, it uh, and and there's and there's other things out there. You know, the army has written about this before, uh, like uh, the 90 division gamble. This one really good paper that was written years ago that got incorporated almost in total into one of the green books. And uh, you know, the funny thing is though, it's like people read the green books that have to do with things that go bang. And there's a lot of, there's a wealth of wonderful information in those and the other books on the technical and support side. But uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a part of the war fighting that frankly, a lot of people don't pay much attention to. They think that the armies just kind of appear and they appear where they're supposed to be at such and such time. It's just, and, and it'll probably always be that way. Probably not to people in this room who, who do pay attention to things like that. But you know, for, for most people, you know, the armies just appear and they don't know where they came from. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, before we get uh, break up here tonight, I'd like to invite one of our very own senior historians here at the USAC, Dr. Conrad Crane, to say thank you tonight. Thanks, Carl. DM, it's always a pleasure to hear you. Uh, That's Dennis to you. Yeah, the, the, uh, we, Dennis and I have engaged in the end of the war in the Pacific over the years, and uh, I've refereed between himself and some of my mentors, like Bart Bernstein, on some things. Uh, you know, keep this up, and I'm going to tell everybody about that letter of yours where you said you felt like Luxembourg between right. Germany and France. That's right. I was, that was being in between him and he and Bart and some of these debates. I felt like Luxembourg between Germany and France because you could, I couldn't win. I just couldn't win. But uh, I, I want to thank Dennis for, I mean, giving us a little different perspective of the end of the war. Now, we keep, we, we forget about, we talk a lot about the end game in the Pacific, but we forget about Europe. And, and a lot of the criticisms of strategic bombing, like for instance, the bombing of Dresden in February is based on this assumption that the war was over 
Instead, we're, we still have very heavy casualties. We've got major combat operations afterwards. It is not a smooth end game in Europe either. We lose perspective on that. So thanks, Dennis, for giving us a different perspective on, on the end of the war in, in Europe. And, and a lot of key strategic issues about manpower. Uh, you, you finish your, your, your defense enterprise management course for students that are here. Big issues on manpower we talk about in class all the time. War termination, which is always a messy business. A lot of great things here for all of us to absorb. So on behalf of the Army Heritage Education Center, Dennis, thank you very much for the presentation. I think it's been very rich for all of us and given us a lot to ponder. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events. <laughs>